0: The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Vit University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. A proud member of the Syneca network from sub-China, I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden, the senior China Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, we're recording this on Monday, and on Thursday of this week is a very exciting moment when Afrobarometer, the polling agency, public opinion agency, let me get that straight, is going to be releasing its new survey on what do Africans think about China's role in Africa and the country's influence in comparison with other external actors. In many ways, this Afrobarometer survey is considered to be the benchmark of public opinion polling about the Chinese. They also do it about the United States and other countries as well. But we're going to get some insight on that. And it's incredible because we're at this amazing moment in China-Africa relations where you look at what's going on and you can see just a whole ocean of negativity. If you go onto social media, you'll see lots of posts about discrimination in China, labor abuses, mining, illegal mining in Nigeria, the loans and the debt. And it's easy to walk away from all of that thinking that China-Africa relations is in this horrible place right now. At the same time, You see that diplomatic relations and government to government relations are extremely strong, where there is not a president or prime minister on the continent that is putting any distance between China and Africa. And it's really this moment where you can misread the situation if you're only looking at part of the data. And, Cobus, you've talked about extensively about the big divide between African civil society and Africa's governing elites. That too complicates the perceptions of China and Africa in this current moment it's
2: complicated even more by the fact that the, in, that the West isn't stable itself. You know, so, so the U.S. Um, is currently putting a lot of pressure on on different Global South governments to to stop working with certain Chinese companies, um, companies that happen to also be very highly invested in, in many different parts of African development at the moment. So, you know, kind of all of this is happening on the back of a very high-pressure kind of U.S.-China relationship.
1: So going back to Afrobarometer in their last survey in 2017 China ranked 2nd as a development model after the US and in terms of overall popularity China was somewhat or very positive in a very positive influence according to 63% of the people that they surveyed in in 36 different countries. So only 3 years ago China was really quite popular. The indications that I'm hearing is that a lot of those numbers are actually holding. And again, I think that will come as a big surprise to people who consume most of their information about China-Africa, relations from the New York Times, the Washington Post, the the Guardian, whatnot, that does tend to focus more on some of the more negative aspects of it or to glean information from social media. So let's get some perspective on this. And we really couldn't have two people who are better positioned to talk about this. And they wrote a new article that came across our radar, China in Africa's Looking Glass, Perceptions and Realities, Hangwei Li is an award-winning journalist and a PhD candidate in politics and international studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. She was also a visiting scholar at the Harvard Kennedy School and a researcher at Boston University's Global Development Policy Center. Uh, Hangwei, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
3: Thank you very much for having me. And as your loyal listener, it's great to finally speak to you in (laughs) Cobus.
1: It's incredible that after all these years, this is the first time you've been on the show. I've been a big admirer of all of your work on Twitter and your writings and whatnot. So again, I am really excited that you're finally able to join us from London. And then also for the first time on the program, joining us from Johannesburg is Jacqueline Musiktoa, who is the founder and managing partner at Hoja Law Group and a researcher on China-Africa relations and African political economy. Last year, by the way, she was appointed to the UN Committee for Development Policy, and she's also a young global leader of the World Economic Forum. A very good morning to you, Jacqueline. Welcome to the program.
4: Thank you so much, Eric and Kobus, for having me. Really excited to be having this
1: conversation with you and your listeners. I'd like to get, really talk to both of you with this first question. And Jacqueline, I'd like you to start first. In your article you, you both wrote, you said, the reality is that China needs Africa as much as Africa needs China. Let's use that as a jumping off point. First to you, Jacqueline, then Hangwei. I'd like to get your take on that.
4: So, I I think in international affairs, um, it's pretty clear that countries need each other, and I think even though there are tensions now and again, the reality is we're all in this together. And I think COVID nineteen has really showed us that we have to rely on each other to find solutions. And I think in the case of China Africa, uh, the China Africa discourse. There's so many angles that are important for both China as well as sub-Saharan Africa, um, not only diplomatically, um, but also from a capacity-building perspective, um, understanding each other culturally, um, but also from a development and an economic growth perspective. Um, There's so many touch points that... Um, need to be addressed, that will continue to be addressed, um, and that really make us realize that our futures are intertwined. Um, So even though China might have issues with other parts of the world, I think almost as you mentioned with respect to the Afrobarometer survey, from an Africa-China perspective, the relationship remains strong just because we do need each other, not only now, but also looking forward in years to come. I think the question that needs to be teased out is, how do we make sure that the relationship between China and African countries remains equal? Um, How do we make sure that African countries get what they need without the perception or the feeling that they're being taken advantage of by China.
3: Yeah, I actually very much agree with uh, what Jacqueline just said. China needs Africa and Africa also needs China. There is no doubt. And especially china has an, we we know that china has a very impressive track record of lifting its millions of people out of poverty and i think a lot of africans admire that but i think another change i observed that is that before the pandemic when we were talking about china's relations with with africa we often talk about uh, the economic perspective which is certainly a very crucial perspective, but because of the pandemic and also the worsened China-U.S. relationships, as well as the I think the continuous pressure on issues such as Xinjiang, Hong Kong, coming from the Five Eyes, which is an intelligence alliance. uh, comprising Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, the U.S. So um, I observe that the relationship between China and Africa become more politicized than before, um, as I think Beijing needs African countries' standing and also support in international stage, uh, especially in the United Nations.
2: Um Wei, how how do you see the coronavirus crisis how how do you think that has changed Africa's relationship with both the US and with China
3: I think there has definitely uh, a lot of change and but I think um both the US um both both uh, African countries, and they certainly do not want to be a pawn in the China-U.S. Angles, um because I think if China and the U.S. want to present their image as a major and responsible player in the world, they should not force African countries to choose a side. But I, I think at some point they're already doing so. Um, yeah, and I think in particular, um, we know that the West has spent too much time lecturing and criticizing Africans about what they should do and what they should not do. And the Africans are not so happy about that. Um, and because all these lectures remind them the colonial history, and um, yeah. So I think uh, we, it, it's definitely a very um, important for us to, to, to observe this change
1: Jacqueline, let's pick up some of the comments you talked about in terms of equity in the relationship. And and it just doesn't seem like it's ever going to be equal at the end of the day, because a country of 1.3 billion people that has the second largest uh, navy in the world that now has the largest military in the world and the second largest economy in the world is never going to be equal with a country like Ghana or Zambia or even South Africa. Just the size and imbalance makes an makes it just such that there's never going to be any time of of equality. It's called an asymmetric difference, is what a lot of scholars will, will talk about. And you talked about trying to build some equality between the two so that Africans have agency in their relationship with China. But how is that possible? Because it just doesn't seem like that's ever going to happen, and it can never happen to the point where Ghana, for example, just as a small country, is ever going to be able to sit at the table and say, We are truly equal to you and we have power with you as well in the power dynamic.
4: I actually think that several countries um, are on their way to trying to get that equality. Now, will that equality ever be perfect? No. And I think if we look at the history of African countries um, and their history with different colonial rulers, that hasn't been the case. But I think moving forward, there is... A huge opportunity with the African Free Continental Trade Agreement, for instance, for African countries to negotiate with China as a bloc and to really, really, one, not only understand their competitive advantage and reduce the amount of raw materials being exported, but finally get to a point where African countries can work together on Exporting final products. And I think that will be the game changer of trying to balance uh, the relationship between China and Africa. But at an individual level, different countries have taken steps to really, one, just understand what China needs, two, understand how China negotiates, three, understand what their own powers are. I'll give the example of Rwanda. When negotiating government contracts, Rwanda is very clear about what it needs as a country and puts itself... Forward with those particularities in their contracts and isn't scared when they're sitting across Chinese negotiators. And I think it's really important for countries to understand their own power and the fact that China wants the resources that they have or China wants to do the projects in those countries. And so rather than bowing down, really early when negotiating, I think it's really important for countries to put their best step forward and negotiate um, in powerful ways. However, to do that, you do need capacity within government, or government needs to have the resources to hire the best negotiators at international law firms, working with local law firms to get there. So I think there's small ways, um, and it's happening on a case by case basis, um, but I think overall, unfortunately, there is still an imbalance which a lot of countries do not know how to address yet. And you
1: talked about negotiating as a bloc, and we've heard that a lot. Is there any precedent that you can point to of when Africa successfully done that with a great power?
4: Mm, good question.
1: Um, we hear it. I just and it's a great idea. It sounds great that, you know, the oil producing countries would come together and then negotiate directly with with China. But in, in reality, Nigeria, for example, was a holdout on the AFCTA, the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. One of the big problems in Africa is there isn't harmonization of trade policies, of tax policies, of infrastructure, of anything. For the most part. And this is one of the reasons why we hear that it's cheaper and easier to ship rice from Mozambique to China than it is to ship rice from Mozambique to South Africa.
4: True. But this is what the AFCFTA um, is trying to solve right now. Um, unfortunately, because of COVID, its implementation has been delayed till next year. But the goal is really now that most countries have signed on, including Nigeria, even though it did take a while, the goal now is how can Africa put its interests as Africa rather than individual countries? Um, And I think that with this push, at least towards economic prospects, I do think that there might be changes. Will it be hard? Absolutely. Will it take time? To move seamlessly? Absolutely. Um, We looked at the EU as an example over the past decade plus. But as the EU continues to go through its own growing pains, I think it's been a good reality check also for African integration to say we have this grand idea, But there will be growing pains. It will take time. Let's do what's possible at the moment. So first step was, let's go ahead and get an agreement together that we do plan to work as a unified bloc. Next step, let's work on harmonization across the continent. We obviously know that there's stronger and bigger countries, South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, for instance. But how can they support a Swaziland, a Gambia, and the like, to also make sure that their trade policy not only aligns with African trade policy as a whole, but also um, to make sure that it aligns with a World Trade Organization policy as well. So I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I don't look at it as a short-term project. I do think that we are looking way into like 2030 as a goal for us to finally get to a point where we are seeing the full advantages. Um, Having said that, I do think when African countries have negotiated as smaller trading units, as smaller blocks, there have been successes. Um, Now, we may not agree with the EU um, agreements that Africa has negotiated, but that's an example where different African countries different African uh, countries created partnerships to negotiate with the EU. What I think will be interesting to see is not only the how the AFCFTA pans out, but now that Kenya, for instance, is negotiating a bilateral treaty with the U.S., how will that negotiation work, um, as well as how will that work with um Kenya um, and the whole AFCFTA block, as well as Kenya's relationship with China. So I think over the next decade or so, we will be seeing some differences in negotiation, um, as well as power dynamics. But I think the overall goal on the continent is for Africa to be not only a stronger trade negotiator, but also a, a stronger trade partner
2: do you foresee that china would be would kind of gracefully you know kind of segue into dealing with these these blocks um, you know, kind of as as they they kind of come online, because you know, or, or do you think it, it it's going to be a little bit more resistant, particularly considering that China, so much of China-Africa relations is just this kind of big mountain of bilateral relations, rather than, uh, you know, kind of rather than kind of, you know, China has so far not been particularly kind of amenable to working with with groups of African countries, even though you know, kind of it does have some it does um, express support for the AU. So you know, kind of so. How how willing do you think China is going to be to to kind of to, to slot into this kind of new way of doing business with Africa?
4: I think China will be on board. Um, as you mentioned, China is a huge supporter of the African Union. Um, and I think China will use any opportunity that's available to further engage on the continent. Um, I think China will try to find greater links between A F C F T A and the Belt and Road Initiative. I also think China will continue to engage bilaterally, um, so I don't think that'll go away. What I do think will be interesting to watch is the power dynamic between China's support to the AU, um, engaging at the CFTA level, um, but then also engaging bilaterally, especially as a lot of the recipients of Chinese trade, and aid um, go through hard times in the next uh, few years. So it'll be interesting to see how China, for instance, considers debt relief to countries um, that aren't able to pay back bilateral loans, but also as China continues to trade with these countries. So I think it'll be an interesting time. I think from an Africa perspective, what I'm really curious to see also is whether the trade capacity that has been built up over the past few decades is really equipped to get into new questions of trade. Uh, by new questions of trade, not only a new trade block, but also technology and how that will impact trade moving forward. Um, how um, um, no, besides technology, how we'll also continue to deal with, you know, movement of people and that's movement of Africans across Africa, but also movement of Chinese people to Africa and Africans, uh, into China. So I think that there's some interesting, there's some interesting issues that we don't yet fully understand, um, that I think will come to play in the next couple of years. Hongwei, let's get your take
1: on that.
3: Sure. Um, Yeah, as Jacqueline just uh, speak on trade, and then I actually recently just saw a figure, I can't remember the exact number, but it shows that between January to April, the trade value between China and Africa in terms of US dollars declined by around 16 17% year on year with China's export to Africa and imports from Africa also declined. I think at the moment it's still very hard for us to tell when the pandemic will be fully controlled. But when it's fully controlled, I believe the trajectory of rapid trade in a wide range of products is expected to be resumed. As Corpus also just um, asked me the question uh, regarding to the U.S. and and China relationship, and then I actually uh, believe that um, Uh, in the future or in the coming months uh, that might include less financing uh, and investing on new projects as Chinese companies are gradually becoming more cautious and conservative Um, I think this is not only because of the pandemic, but also because of the changing relationship between the United States and China. So in the past, we see that many Chinese companies, both state-owned and private companies, they came to Africa without taking much consideration on political risk or health risk. But I think the pandemic and also recent restrictions and bans on Chinese companies such as TikTok and Huawei have actually forced them to be more cautious and possibly less aggressive. Uh, You may argue that the restriction on Huawei and TikTok are mainly implementing the United States or Western countries and African countries have not really involved in that. But I would say that Chinese companies do not have as much confidence as before in terms of uh, company uh, company internationalization and also over this investment. Um, you know, that many Chinese entrepreneurs, they used to believe that as long as they work hard, as long as they eat bitterness, they can succeed. However, I think it's not always the case. And, and there are so many things that are be beyond their control.
1: It's interesting that you, you're you forecasting a, a rebound in trade in the post-COVID-19 era. It's one of the things that I've been writing about in the newsletter that, Hungway you get where I see that we're moving into a different era and a different phase of China-Africa relations. In fact, where trade peaked in 2015 at about $220 billion, and since 2015 has never really recovered, and in part because Africa, for the most part, sells three things to China—oil, minerals, and timber. One of the things that we're seeing is that now that the Belt and Road is much larger than it was 10, 15 years ago— China's diversifying its sourcing of oil, mineral, and timbers. And one of the things particularly related to oil, and David Shin, who's a scholar, a China-Africa scholar at George Washington University, has this great statistic where 10 years ago in 2008, 30% of Chinese imported oil came from three African countries. Today, it's less than 18% that only comes from one. More oil now is being sourced from Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and other places. Minerals are coming from South America, and timber is coming from here in Southeast Asia. And so without oil, mineral, and timber, where is the rebound in trade going to come from? And then at the same time, the African consumer is getting pummeled right now from the economic crisis. So their ability to buy more Huawei phones, more finished goods from China, is probably going to be reduced for quite some time. So with that in mind, where do you see the growth coming for in China Africa trade in the years ahead
3: um, I don't really see like a big uh, increase in the trade sector as, uh, as you just mentioned there will be definitely a lot of challenges and, and difficulties in the trade sectors especially you know that there were a lot of Africans in Guangzhou and uh, they were doing the trade business and they have been contributing to the informal economy sector. But now, since um, since the pandemic, um, and also what happened in Guangzhou, I think probably there will be less African traders doing bis- uh, doing trade business uh, uh, between China and Africa. But uh, what what I was uh, saying is that when the pandemic will be uh, fully controlled, and the the trade um the trade volume will certainly increase comparing uh, comparing to the situation um, now.
1: Ah, okay, yeah. So from the from twenty twenty, you see it kind of rebounding a little bit. I get it. I get it.
2: Jacqueline, I, I wanted to um, to ask your your opinion about a different trade issue. Um, the the there's been so much talk about the possibility of Chinese offshoring to Africa. Um, you know, and 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 the COVID nineteen crisis has you know has actually thrown a lot of those debates up in the air. And as at the same time, kind of raise the you know the need to shorten supply chains globally. Um, like, what is the way? Where do you see the 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 question of of Chinese offshoring to Africa, and then also the the larger issue of of just the China's role in boosting African industrialization? Like, like how optimistic are you about that? You know, at this moment in twenty twenty.
4: I think the rest of this year, unfortunately, might be a write off, um, just because there's still too many travel restrictions across the continent and so I think right now everyone is kind of forecasting 2021 and moving forward. I think we'll continue to see a lot of the offshoring that has been happening in Ethiopia increase. I think that model has worked well not only for Ethiopia but also for China. Um, obviously um, the, pol- the, pol- the political situation in Ethiopia um, is a bit tricky and a lot of Chinese businesses have suffered at the hands of uh, discontented Ethiopians. But regardless, I do think that that um, that level of offshoring, whether it's for textiles um, or manufacturing, will continue. Um, other countries like Rwanda have tried and continue to try to bring in more Chinese manufacturing, obviously at a smaller scale. Um, Lesotho in garments. So I think we will continue to see that trend. How fast it'll grow over the next couple of years, I'm not sure. Um, and I say I'm not sure because right now, everyone is really tentative. What's been made clear by African political leadership is that there is the need for increased manufacturing, especially of ne- um, essential health supplies here on the continent. Um, China has committed to providing PPE in the short term, uh, but I haven't yet seen any conversations about long term manufacturing. So I do think that there is a I think there is an opportunity there. But let's see how that plays out. What I am hearing a lot of is African countries and African business people saying, how do we set up our own manufacturing plants for necessary health products? Uh, which I think is a positive um, to at least reduce the amount of importation that we have. But I think the problem with any chaotic situation is, while we're dealing with the crisis, we tend to come up with good ideas um, but sometimes once the crisis goes away, the follow through falls. And so if we look at, for instance, the extractive sector, anytime there's a boom, we're really excited that there's a boom and we stop talking about diversification. Um, anytime there's a bust, we go back to the conversation about diversification. So my hope with COVID-19 is that besides the sustained conversation, we actually do come up with localized solutions or at least regional solutions to make sure that we don't find ourselves um, in a similar crisis in the future. So whether that's Chinese investment coming in to support that um, or investment from other parts of the world, I definitely think that there is a need. Um, I think on the last point of industrialization, I mean, African countries continue to be committed to industrialization Um, having said that we're still dealing with basic issues of electricity uh, poor electricity access um, infrastructure issues and the like and so Once again, I think the appeal to African governments is always let's deal with the fundamentals and then, you know, bring in everything else after Um, to the degree it can be done together. That's what we've been trying. It's worked in some countries. It's not working so well in other countries. But I think we still need the basics of power, at least, um, and transport infrastructure to be much better developed before we can focus on full-scale industrialization.
0: Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinarreporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars.
1: It's interesting listening to the both of you and, and reading your article and your essay in uh, in Rusi, that it feels more like a much more healthy and well-balanced relationship that isn't anywhere near as polarized as it's made to be on the outside looking in. And that's how, honestly, how Kobus and I try and approach this this subject as well. But I think a lot of people may be surprised listening to this going, wait, are you talking about china Africa relations in 2020? Because... You pointed out in your essay that China's engagement in Africa has become much more polarized, and it's the conversation, and I'm sure, Hangwei, when you meet people in London, when I interact with scholars and I interact with journalists about China, Africa, who are new to the subject, they almost instantly go to, let me, let me get the list here, Cobus. it's either Guangzhou, labor abuse, debt traps, uh, let's go through the list of all the horrific negatives that are there. And they don't focus on any of the positives. And Hong Wei, you posted a tweet the other day, which I found absolutely fascinating. There was a Japanese oil ship off the coast of Mauritius that spilled. And if you did a Google search during the height of the crisis, not once or very rarely, but almost never did they mention Japan in the title and the headline. And you pointed out that had that been a Chinese oil ship that crashed off the coast of Mauritius, it would have been a Chinese tanker is killing the environment of Mauritius. It would have been emphasized that it was Chinese. So, you know, Hongwei, I'm just trying to understand how is it that there's these discrepancies between a more analytical view that you're bringing and this hyper-polarized view that so many people on the outside looking in seem to have?
3: Yeah, I think um, your question actually just reminds me essay, um, a, a Cambridge scholar, and um, her name is Dr. Emma Mosley, she wrote an essay on how Western media report in China. And I think one of her arguments is that um, the Western media has been quite biased, as we know that the Western media has been, uh, keep uh, pa- painting China as black. And also, um, I think you have mentioned uh, several incidents that happened in this year and also in the past probably one or two decades. Um, I agree that the emerging relationship between China and Africa certainly has a lot of problems. It's not a relationship without problems. Um, You mentioned what happened in Guangzhou. I think many African countries were very disappointed about about China on what happened in Guangzhou earlier this year. and There were even diplomatic anger. Um, That was really serious and really had some damage on the relations between China and Africa. But generally speaking, I think uh, China and Africa have remained in close cooperation during the ongoing pandemic. Although, as I just said, there are issues and unpleasant incidents that emerge from time to time it's just like many relationships there are ups and downs but what when we want to say whether it's a, a, the relationship is good or bad we need to see from the bigger picture
1: but that's at the political level are you also seeing that at the civil society level in the media on social media with NGOs non-state actors so at the state level I 100% agree with you it's a harder case to make it would seem to me that in the civil society level that's also the case Because a lot of people seem to feel more negative about China than certainly at the government level.
3: Yeah, I think it also depends on which country we are looking at. Certainly different African countries' perception on China might also be very different. Um, I think one thing is that it depends on how vibrant, how liberal the media is. For example, in Ethiopia, you seldom see negative news in the country uh, about China as most of the Ethiopian media are state-owned and all has close relationship with the government. But in Kenya, you can always find the negative stories on China, on newspaper headlines, on its social media, as Kenya has very vibrant media environments. And another reason might relate to that Western news organization such as the BBC's legacy in Kenya goes back to the colonial period. So it's possible that how Western media reporting on China will be more likely to affect Kenyan media than Ethiopian media, as we, we know that Ethiopia has never been colonized. And yeah, I think that's certainly one, one perspective to look at. But I think our our article, we, we focus on uh, African perceptions on the Chinese state rather than uh, Chinese ma- migrants because we argue that despite all these challenges, China's role in Africa has been positive. Um, although, although, um, I think uh, there are differences on African perceptions on the Chinese state and also the perceptions on Chinese migrants. China as a state is generally viewed as good ally who furthers Africa's development agenda. But we agree that Chinese migrants are oftentimes being viewed more negatively. Uh, they They have been viewed as a threat of taking away African jobs. They have been viewed um, the people who are selling cheap uh, products.
2: Jacqueline, from from taking that as, as that same issue, but from a different perspective, you, in in your article, you you pointed out that that the Chinese state, you know, kind of is is seen as as beneficial to to African development as as a whole. You know, how, how do you compare that that kind of not only the perception but the 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 kind of level of, of development engagement that you're seeing at the moment from Africa's Western partners. Like, you know, kind of what what does the contrast look like in terms of specifically narrowly um engagement with African development from Europe and the US at the moment?
4: I think unfortunately we're in a time where everyone is looking inward. Um, a lot of Western countries, not only because of COVID, But if you look at the case of the U.S. after the election of Donald Trump has really tried to focus domestically. If you look at the U.K. with Brexit, they're really trying to figure out what is the U.K.'s relationship with not only Africa, but the rest of the world. And so Africa finds itself in this very awkward time where traditional partners are now really looking to focus inward And it's not yet clear um, how high on the priority list Africa is. What that has done has meant that it's created a void um, that is in some ways being filled by China and in other ways is being filled by other, can I say, emerging partners and mostly emerging partners from the Gulf. So Saudi Arabia, um, Turkey, the Emirates and the like. Now, looking forward, will Western countries continue to have a degree of dominance in African countries? Yes. What dominance will mean, I think, will be redefined. Now that the U.S. is not focusing its efforts as much on democratization, we're yet to see what the U.S.'s priority will be in Africa. Now that the U.K. has combined the Foreign Office um, and DFID, Um, We're yet to see what that will mean for development impact, um, as well as diplomatic impact on the continent. So I think as all these other countries continue to go through their own changes, um, both electoral and also policy-wise, I think Africa continues to wait, but not wait and do nothing. I think it's wait and engage other countries that want to engage. And I think on that point, what has been really interesting to watch this year has really been China, how China has stepped up um, from a COVID assistance perspective compared to other countries. Yes, the U.S. has provided aid. The U.K. has as well. Um, other countries have provided aid. But the way China has provided aid has been interesting. It's not only been bilateral aid from the government, but it's also been, you know, foundations. So Jack Ma foundations, it's been individual Chinese citizens in different countries contributing to fighting COVID in Africa. Now, one can argue, well, you know, as far as we know, the the virus came from China, so China should be helping countries. But that political argument aside, at the end of the day, regardless of where the disease originated, people are dying. And people on the continent um, are at a disadvantage because healthcare systems were broken before COVID came. And so any help is positive. And so China has really come through very strong at providing assistance. And we haven't seen as strong assistance from Um, Western countries in particular. So it'll be interesting to see what happens um, with the US election later this year. um, And whether if Biden wins, Africa will become a greater priority. um, Or if Trump wins, whether you know, the policy will continue as is, which is very little to no engagement. Um, It'll also be interesting to see what happens with the new restructuring of the UK foreign office and how the UK will interact with Africa. Other countries like the Scandinavian countries continue um, and they have a pretty good balance between um, aid and trade. But moving forward, I think we will continue to probably see more visible um, aid from China Um, into African countries. Um, I think we will continue to see greater public engagement of African officials with Chinese officials. Um, And I think we will continue to see, as you were speaking about with Hangwei, the media war, so to say, of whether this is positive or negative engagement from a Chinese perspective. But either way, I think it'll be important for Africa to make sure it's not a pawn between China and the U.S. or China and any other countries in any of their own diplomatic wranglings.
1: Just to be fair, and the I think the U.S. State Department would probably disagree with you, Jacqueline, because they say, and maybe i will not be the first time that that happens, but that they, they claim that when you look at total public health assistance from, from the United States to Africa, that they are by far the leading humanitarian health assistance provider, in, including COVID-19. Their criticism is that uh, the Chinese have gotten a lot more attention and media credit for their donations, but in terms of actual dollar value to public health writ large, the U.S. is the leading provider. Again, we don't know what the Chinese statistics are in terms of the official data, but I just wanted to put that out there so uh, we don't get angry emails from our listeners inside the State Department.
4: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I mean, I I definitely am not discounting the State Department's contribution. Um, But... I think what is interesting is the State Department and you know USAID have been longtime partners in African countries and supporting the development of healthcare systems. What reading through at least the memo that was released a couple of months ago, it looks like a lot of money was diverted from existing programs and kind of redirected towards COVID. Um, obviously, I'm not an expert on it, uh, so you know i'm definitely happy to be challenged but as far as media attention um yes china got a lot of media attention but what's interesting is the most powerful media houses on earth are still american um and so the fact that there wasn't as much reporting i think is also a bit interesting because you know the the opportunity is definitely there and maybe part of it is above and beyond you know continued programming um, what people did want to see over the course of the past few months was more high-level political engagement and not only commitment to health care, but commitment to helping rebuild economies after the recession. Because right now we're dealing with multiple crises. There's the health crisis. There's the economic crisis. Um, there's a, a crisis of you know jobs and underemployment. And all of these need to be addressed together um with the scope of the lens of you know what happens post covid rather than focusing on kind of one and i think in the conversation with china or at least based on the last china uh the last summit that xi jinping had a couple of weeks ago the conversation was above and beyond health and i am just not aware of conversations whether from the us or other um partner donor countries of what happens post covid above and beyond health assistance.
2: Yeah, and even just on that point, even even in relation to to health assistance, it's it's interesting how in all of the discourse between the the, the, the that the Chinese are directing to Africa in relation to COVID nineteen, they always mention vaccines and vaccine access, and that Africa will will have access to to vaccines early on. Um, you know, kind of which is which is something we're not seeing from from Western partners. Actually, that that actually does it doesn't really come up as a talking point frequently. Yeah, that's a good point.
1: Hang Wei. we got a great viewpoint from Jacqueline in terms of what she sees coming up in the future. Uh, let's wrap up our discussion today with your outlook, taking into account... The difficulties that we've talked about in terms of civil society versus state. Also, next year is the FOCAC summit. That's the big forum on China-Africa cooperation summit, which happens every three years. That's going to be a very big deal. So we have a lot of milestones coming up, in particular, thinking about COVID as well, whether or not we can bring this under control. Give us your outlook for how you see China-Africa relations in the next six to 12 months.
3: Well, I think it's um, very difficult to somehow difficult to tell, but what I want to uh, maybe elaborate is from the perspective of um, Africans' bargaining power and agency, as I think is very important. because I actually often heard from Chinese officials saying that African politicians are very straightforward when they're having meetings with China. So, So for example, they told the Chinese, we want to build a road, we want to build a national stadium, we want to upgrade our government complex. So in that sense, African politicians do have agency. But as I think Jacqueline just also pointed out, there are so many challenges and also difficulties that African countries are facing. So I don't know, like in the future, in the negotiating table, are uh, the requests from Africa, such as building roads, upgrading government com- complex, strategic enough, so I think There is a burning question for African countries that uh, how to exert more agency at the domestic policy level before going to the negotiating table. Um, I think to achieve that, uh, African countries really need to know what they they want strategically, scientifically, and also from a long-term perspective. Um, Maybe I can share some personal experience I have been around like 15 African countries in the past several years, and I have been speaking to many African politicians and policymakers. And frankly speaking, it was really sad for me to see that many African government-owned think tanks are lack of funding and lack of staff. Um, for example, I visited the Zambian Development Agency last year, and there were, there were only very few staff there. And when I was interviewing them, they told me that they haven't paid for some months due to the financial difficulties the Zambian government was facing. And when I was asking them about some data on Chinese FDI in Zambia, and they suggested me to look at the size carry data because they don't have the human resources resource or capital to do the research. So I think this is somehow ironic, right? Because... The government depends on ZDA's research on making national plan, but the reality is that they don't have any deep understandings on some critical issues, and that's not only happening in Zambia. And there are many other similar examples that some African countries. National strategy plans only depend on two or three researchers, or sometimes they have to find someone who is based in the global north to write such important plan. So what I want to say here is that African policymakers' decisions oftentimes are not based evidenced or policy-oriented research. So I think if Africa fails to to exert agency in domestic level, if they don't have a complex and strategic plan with China, when they're sitting in the negotiating table, are they really representing the interests of the people? Do they really know what they want? What would be the best for, for them in the long term? So that's actually, that's actually my, my questions.
1: That's an excellent point. It's one that we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast in previous shows by talking about that China has now, doesn't have an Africa policy anymore. China used to have an Africa approach, but now it's got a Nigeria, a Malawi, a Mali, a Kenya. It's much more specific at the country level. And what you're saying is echoing what we're also seeing as well, which is that while China has these national policies for various African countries, African countries themselves may not have a very sophisticated uh, China policy. And so when they're sitting down, they're oftentimes coming unprepared to the negotiations, and that's something that may impact the outcome of those negotiations. The article is China in Africa's Looking Glass, Perceptions, and Realities. It was published in the Royal United Services Institute, that's RUSI. I didn't know that it was the world's oldest and the UK's leading defense and security think tank. Cobus, did you know about RUSI and the fact that they're that old? I, I know of them, but I didn't realize it's the oldest. I had no idea. Well, there you go. And it's an excellent article. It was written by Hangwei Li, who is an award-winning journalist and a PhD candidate in politics at the SOAS at the University of London. She's also, she was also a visiting scholar at the Harvard Kennedy School and a researcher at Boston University's Global Development Policy Center. If you're interested in China-Africa relations, Hangwei's Twitter feed is definitely one you're going to want to follow. Hangwei, where can people find you on Twitter?
3: So my Twitter is hangwei underscore, underscore li. H-A-N-G-W-E-I underscore L-I,
1: yeah. Wonderful. And uh, I, again, can't recommend Hangwei's Twitter feed enough. Jacqueline Munamusitwa is the founder and managing partner at the Hoxha Law Group and a researcher on China-Africa relations and African political economy. Uh, Last year, she was appointed to the UN Committee for Development Policy And she's also a young global leader at the World Economic Forum. Jacqueline, I know you're also on Twitter. Where can people find you?
4: I am at Nubian Council. So that is N-U-B-I-A-N-C-O-U-N-S-E-L. Looking forward to engaging
1: online, too. We'll put links to both the Twitter accounts in the show notes and also a link to the article as well. Thank you both for taking the time to join us today to to share your insights with us. We really appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you very much for the opportunity,
1: Cobus. It's still hard to get your head around about where we are right now. I thought all the points that Jacqueline and Hangwei made, both in our conversation today and in their their article, are were right on. I mean, I, I don't disagree with any of it. That said, there's a, there's so much more that's that's also in the mix. Again, the the the, the frustrations that people are having on the civil society level to me, can't be discounted. And again, Hangwei pointed out that they were talking mostly state to state. And in the state level, yes, I think China's killing it. They're doing great. There's no doubt. Uh, there's, I mean, you can see across the continent that relations are very, very strong, not, ev- not only at the national level, but also at the multilateral agency level with the African Union, ECOWAS. There we're not seeing any of the tensions that we do see in the civil society. There was an interesting article last week that came out about how China lost Nigeria. And Nigeria, in so many ways, is really a flashpoint, because the level of anxiety about Nigeria's relations with China, in some ways, is indicative of what uh, other people on the continent are also feeling. Although, as Wei pointed out, they may not be able to express it, because in places like Algeria, Egypt, Ethiopia, the press is not always free, and the voices are much more contained. Uh, Again... I'm confused and that's where we should be because this is an extraordinarily confusing topic.
2: I think one has to also keep in mind that the state retains a, a really strong role, you know, Af- in you know kind of an African life as in general. You know, the statism a, is a major um a major service provider for example um you know a, a lot a lot of services that, that in other countries would be provided by um, by private companies are provided by the state in many african countries so so in some ways the the stability of state state relationships between between the china africa you know in, in with you know between china and africa I think count the, in in some cases um, this that stability counts for more than it would in other countries. You know, kind of with with a, a more kind of diversified kind of role of players. Um, but that said, you know, this kind of civil society split that we're seeing in 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 parts of Nigeria is is interesting for me, and it's it's you know kind of it, it one needs to take to keep an eye on it. I think you know I tend to read it not only as a not necessarily as as, as simply a referendum on Nigeria or Africa's relationship with China, but also in expressing um, anxieties and dis, you know discontent in relation to Africa's global role, um, and you know kind of and and the way that Africa is always at kind of subjugated to to so many different external actors. Um, And, you know, kind of with China standing as kind of exhibit A of that rather than this being only about the China-Africa relationship.
1: And just a warning to people who oftentimes misread the anti-Chinese sentiment in a place like Nigeria, and it's the same in Zambia. We saw it also in Botswana and in Kenya as well, where China as a topic is getting sucked into domestic politics And so oftentimes, just as we see in the United States where Biden and Trump are beating each other over the head on the China issue, the same goes in Nigeria as well. And that's what we're seeing today, where a lot of the loan discussion that's going on is often about domestic political points being scored rather than China, because it's not actually rooted in the facts. I say that because we're looking at a country that has borrowed $3 billion out of a $28 billion foreign debt. Uh, There is no risk of being swallowed up by Chinese debt. In fact, uh, Nigeria owes three to four times more to euro bondholders, and we don't see any of the anxiety being directed towards those bondholders. My point here is not to discount anything that people are feeling in Nigeria, but to suggest that the situation is oftentimes made much more complicated by domestic politics, just as we see in the United States." What are you expecting to see in the Afrobarometer report? Because I think that's going to be one of our best indications as to what's going to happen. For some of you who are listening to this later, the Afrobarometer data will already be out. We have not seen a comprehensive 36-country snapshot of public opinion about the Chinese since 2017. How do you think it's going to have changed from 2017 to the present?
2: Mm. Ooh, any, any answer is going to get me in trouble. Um I think my my hunch, and this is this is really just based on you know kind of my you know kind of it's not based on any kind of real analysis. It's just kind of the position I'm taking right now. Is I think it will probably have dipped slightly from 2017, but not as much to indicate a real kind of anti-China turn. That's that's kind of you know kind of what I'm expecting. But I can't wait to see this data. It'll be really interesting. What do you think?
1: I think you're right. I think exactly the same thing. I think it's going to be very, very surprising to people in the U.S. and Europe who will see a dip, who will see maybe a more complex, nuanced view of China, but nowhere near the drops that we've seen in the United States. I was looking at similar public opinion survey data for the United States, and I posted this on my Weibo account, how over since 2016, 17, really since the Trump administration came into power, the views of China have just cratered, I mean, just plummeted. And I think it might come as a surprise that other people don't feel the same way as what's happened in Europe and the U.S. And Africa has always, in my view, had a much more complex, nuanced, textured view of its relations, pragmatic is, is the word that I oftentimes use to define China-Africa relations. And I think we'll see that reflected in the Afrobarometer data. We're hoping to be able to get the authors of the and the people behind the Afrobarometer survey to join us on the show to talk about their findings. So we're very excited about that. That will be a great discussion on public perception of the Chinese. In the meantime, I recommend following Hangwei and Jacqueline and reading their article. Uh, this is a topic, of course, that we talk about regularly in our daily email newsletter. In fact, the newsletter is so detailed that it's the kind of thing that every single day, it's what we call a dipstick. You can just drop it in, check the level of your oil, just like in your car. And you can, with our newsletter, we're constantly talking about these public perception issues. We have a great new way to get on board with the newsletter, $3 for three months. We wanted to make it as accessible as possible for people in Africa, in China, and around the world to try it. So go to our website at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Cobus and I are writing this every day. Cobus does two columns a week. I do three columns a week. So we're putting perspective into it, but also just putting the most deep dive uh, coverage of China Africa news that you can pretty much find anywhere. So we'd love for you to join our community of readers. That'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show. Until then, thank you so much for listening.
0: The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Orlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.